0: Hey everyone, it's Lindsay and Sarah just popping in here at the top of the episode.
1: If you've been listening the past few months, you'll know that Nicole is currently on maternity leave with her second son.
0: However, we managed to sneak in this episode's recording back in in September before she went away, so don't be too confused when you hear her here in a couple of moments. One other quick thing before we get into the episode, we just celebrated our seventh anniversary. So crazy! So crazy. (sighs) So crazy. Uh, And we wanted to take this time to
1: get some feedback from you, our listeners, so we made up a little survey to find out a little bit more about what you like about us. You can find it in the show notes and also on our social media.
0: Speaking of social media, while Nicole and her family are doing great, she still hasn't decided about when she's going to be coming back, so we are not entirely sure when our next episode will be, but you can follow us on social media to hear more about our upcoming schedule, and of course, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.
1: We've got two great Christmassy podcasts from the past, episodes 9 and 21, so if you want to get into the spirit while you wait for us, you can listen to those, plus of course we have this amazing episode for you that you are about to hear, so enjoy that, and have a Whaley great day!
0: Hello everybody, I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are very excited to be reconnecting
2: with a friend from our community and some community science. So sit
0: back and enjoy as we dive right in.
2: it's always awesome when we get to just you know use the podcast as a reason to reach out to friends that we haven't talked to in a long time be like hey friend do you want to be on the podcast with us uh, and today we're very very excited to have long long time friend of ours caitlin birdsall joining us actually Yay. caitlin is your last name still birdsall <laughs> yeah <it> sure is <laughs> Well, you know, people change their name and don't when they have various life changes. Anyways, Caitlin's here. Caitlin's here. (laughs) I'm here.
3: Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, so honored to be here.
2: Caitlin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do, why you are connected to cetaceans, and a great guest for Whale Tales. (laughs) Oh,
3: well, I'm not so sure I'm a great guest, but we'll see how this next little while rolls out. Um, but yeah, uh, my name is Caitlin. I um, have known Sarah and Lindsay and uh, Nicole for many, many years. We all used to work together. Um, I have been working in the world of sort of cetaceans, um, gosh, for f- at least 15 years now, which feels crazy. Um, it also makes me feel very, very, so very old. old. <laughs> so old you guys we are so old um (laughs) yeah yeah it's kind of um when I say that it 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 seems crazy because I like you know it was kind of like that thing that you wanted to do when you were a kid and you never actually thought you would do it um because it wasn't like a real job that was definitely me um and the fact that I've gotten to uh, I had the chance to spend um so much time learning about cetaceans um and talking about cetaceans in my life um is is pretty wild. Um, definitely a dream come true. So, um, I started off, um, actually working at the Vancouver Aquarium Marine Science Center. Um, I was an interpreter there, um, sort of shortly after I got out of university for a couple of years. Um, and that really cemented me back into sort of the world of Marine education. Um, and when I, um, also started learning, uh, about, um, more of the research happening on our coast. Um, I left there and, uh, went to work in the incredible small boardwalk community of Telegraph Cove for several years, um, where I worked, um, on, yeah, on boats, um, with, uh, Stubbs Island Whale Watching, which, uh, was a company, um, that ran out of that place. And, and, uh, I got to spend a lot of time, um, learning about wild cetaceans, um, in sort of the area of Johnston Strait, um, and then was really lucky to um, get a job with um, Dr. Lance Barrett Leonard at um, the Vancouver Aquarium Marine Science Center in their research um, arm um, that's since become OceanWise uh, Conservation Association. Um, and for the last close to 12 years, um, I've worked there. And actually, tomorrow is my last day with OceanWise. Um, but I do hope that, uh, yeah, I will continue in the world of sort of cetacean and marine research and education um, and conservation uh, as my career
2: moves forward. It's so, it's, it's so crazy to think about the fact that like, you trained me, actually. One of the things that, <laughs> that I I look back at so fondly when I was first starting uh straight out of I wasn't even out of university yet. I was still <laughs> in university, uh-huh. actually. You were one of the first people who kind of like taught me how to talk about cetaceans, um, both at the aquarium really? and when I came up to visit you at Stubbs and I was like, I, I know.
3: do this. This is so I cool. Remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I I mean I look back on those times really fondly especially that kind of discovery time in our lives right where we were just learning so much Um, definitely that time uh, working for Stubbs and in Johnston Strait was like so formative in my life and getting to spend time learning about northern resident killer whales and seeing the kind of beginning of the humpback comeback in that area was um, really really special yeah pretty spectacular and I should mention um, that that time was really formative also because I joined first is with a bunch of friends, um, up there. And we actually started the Marine Education and Research Society, which is also a nonprofit organization that I've sat on the board, um, since we, um, first started 11 years ago. So, um, that area, those whales also brought me, um, yeah. An, another way to engage and learn. Mm-hmm.
2: And one of the reasons that we thought you would be such a great guest, specifically for this episode, not just for any episode, although you probably could speak to almost everything we were to talk <laughs> about, um, is because we have talked about citizen science or community science, uh, and this is actually just a great chance for our listeners. I'm going to give a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, we know that there have been kind of various reasons why people use both of those terms um, and that there, there's a lot going on in sort of the, the larger research community about whether we should be labeling these sorts of projects run by just members of the public with help from real researchers as citizen science projects or community science projects, uh, we might use those words interchangeably today, mm-hmm. any one of the four of us, so just forgive us if, if, if you're used to using one and, and we use it because they're they're used differently kind of all over the world. But we have talked about those kinds of projects on the podcast numerous times in the past, but always as sort of a call to action for whatever larger species we're having a, a discussion about, and we haven't ever devoted an episode entirely to talking about the the value of citizen science projects, the ways in which communities can get involved in science projects, and we thought it was about time that we did, and one of the things that I really, really associate with you is your passion for involving members of the public in meaningful science work and really, really, from like an outreach perspective, connecting communities with the research going on in their back waters. Yards? Sure.
0: sure. <laughs> the oceans around <laughs> They're aquatic neighborhood. Yeah,
2: exactly.
3: Yeah. <laughs> They're aquatic, aquatic yes. neighborhoods. Yeah, I, I. Yeah, I usually call them Maroonian backyards, but that's perfect. Um, yeah, and just listening to you say that, Nicole, like, really makes my like heart expand. Um, I should give a like disclaimer um, that I've been on parental leave for the last year, um, so I'm still wrapping my head back around kind of being back in in the work world, um, and hearing that really reminds me of like what I love. To do and and I think it's so true. This idea that um people can be involved in science, I think, is so um not only important for science, but important for our communities because it allows people to really become part of the scientific process and sort of investigate what is um they have access to. Um, but I think community or citizen science is particularly well matched to cetaceans, um, and uh Uh, Yeah. And so I, I should say I have worked on citizen science projects, um, for many, many years, uh, the one we have, of course, uh, here in BC related to cetaceans, well, we have several, but the one that I have been involved in um, that's sort of coastwide is the BC Cetacean Sightings Network, um, and uh, yeah, it's just a project so near to my heart, so I'm so excited that you guys want to want to talk about this today, um, and talk about the idea of citizen science and how that relates to cetaceans, because yeah, I think they're like a match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Not really so, having. Match made in like a really good day watching whales, which is the perfect thing,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's what I would like to do. So <laughs> mm-hmm. Why don't you kind of start us off, Caitlin, by telling, for our listeners, we have a lot of listeners in BC, but we have a lot of listeners, it turns out, all over the world, um, a little bit of kind of the Caitlin's Notes version of what is the BC Cetacean Sightings Network. You have been involved in it for over a decade, um, and you've really, really seen it grow from a very, very small grassroots project to you know, open it. You were the one who went and opened a new office for the VC institution settings network (laughs) in another part of the province. So what (laughs) is it and, and how has it grown?
3: Yeah. So the BC cetacean sightings network, um, is a community science project. Um, and what I always think is like kind of fun or funny is that like when I started there, um, working with that project like 12 years ago, we didn't even have that term, like not only community science, we didn't even call it citizen science. I remember like a few years in starting to use that and people being like, what are you talking about? So it's kind (laughs) of been cool to be involved in essentially a citizen science project before we were calling it citizen science. So <laughs> that's really neat. Um, so it is a project that looks at engaging people that spend time on or near the water to um, report their sightings of whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Um, and um, that project has multiple ways that you can do that um, back when I started, we literally had like carbon copy paper log books that we gave out. Um, now of course uh, we have an app and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's a way for us to monitor, um, cetacean occurrence along the coast, um, using people who are already on the water. And, uh, Earlier, I sort of mentioned how I think community science um, is so well suited for cetaceans. And the reason is um, because we can't be on the water all the time. It's really hard and really expensive to study whales. It's just, you know, you can't be out there all the time. There's not enough scientists. This coast is way too big. Whales are way too hard to find. Um, <laughs> so why not take advantage of all those eyes that might be out there? Um, and so anyone can be an, an, an observer. It is an opportunistic sightings network. Um, and maybe we can talk about that in a little bit, about how some community sciences um, di- differ between sort of like dedicated versus opportunistic. But uh, the sightings network is opportunistic, which means if you're out there and you see something, you can report it. We're not asking you to go regularly. We're not asking you to run a certain track line it's just if you see it, report it. But what this has given us, uh, uh, given that project is this huge database collected over, primarily over the last 20 years, but we even had some historical data um, way back that um, allowed us to look at sort of um, trends in when and where different citations were being seen. Um, and there's a lot kind of, of stuff behind the scenes that that team that now runs that project are doing to kind of quantify observer effort and um, uh, and uh, and to really make that data quite meaningful, but it has meant that we've been able to collect a lot of information on cetaceans, a lot of these populations at risk um, that probably would never have been collected um, without sort of this um, kind of network of observers, because we just could have never had that number of scientists out on the water all the time looking for for whales.
2: Is that a good Coles note? It wasn't very short. Sorry.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: to give, even just myself, not just our listeners, but to give ourselves kind of some perspective on that. There is no need for you to know the exact numbers to the questions that I'm about to ask you. But just from a ballpark perspective, like how many observers would you estimate? And this could be in the if it's if you can't get an exact number, like within the tens to hundreds estimate that there are <laughs> now working on this project.
3: Oh, it's such a good question, Nicole, but I've been off for a year, so I can't I, I can't think of a good one. It definitely is like I would say close to about ten thousand people who have at some point um, reported, but um, observers can be really different. And I think that this is another thing to think about with with um, community science or citizen science is that anyone can participate because, uh, especially in opportunistic projects, because often you can report once or you can um, report a thousand times. You know, it just depends on your access. And there's no in an opportunistic kind of community science project. There's no sort of You know, commitment. So, you know, if you happen to be uh, visiting the coast and you see something, you could report it. Um, or if you happen to work on the water every single day and see something every single day, you can report that as well. So one of the things that I think is so cool is that it is really inclusive. So the number is, um, is, is really big, but I, um, but you know, some of those observers in there, especially kind of like a core group, you know, are really dedicated. We get a huge number of sightings from where Whereas, you know, there are definitely quite a number of observers as well who've just reported a handful of times that was the most that they've ever seen sort of thing. So. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a big group. Um, and, and one of, uh, my joys in working with that project in the past was really getting to know those observers and, um, making those connections. Um, and yeah, getting them excited about it. It was so <laughs> cool when people really got engaged and like were so excited to tell you about the thing they just saw. Um, I have this, like, my favorite observer ever, um, is a woman that lived on Quadra Island, and um, she started reporting kind of right when I had started working with that project. And uh, uh, she was getting really excited about what she was seeing. And I was um, able to ID some of the whales for her and tell her a little bit about them. And um, it really, it really sparked something in her. And she made this own little network on her island where they all like kept their eyes open and reported to each other. And then she would enter the data in for us. And it was just like, it was so cool to see how like bigger projects can um, and that engagement in that science scientific process really had like a snowball effect within her neighborhood and her community as well she got so excited about it that she really started like recruiting all these people to uh to help us out um and uh yeah I love I, I love that you know anyone can be a part of of these types of projects you don't have to be a scientist oh my
2: gosh I love that story so much I know she's my favorite <laughs> And I think to the point that you were making about you know the value from a from a data perspective, um, let alone what you do with that data, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, just like you said, but tens of thousands of observers. I don't think that I would be overestimating to say millions, if not tens of millions, of sightings. Right at this point in time.
3: No, not that many. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, uh, let's see, uh, I, I, I should have checked, um, before I came on, um, but, uh, you know, we get about, um, Yeah, I don't even want to, I don't even want to take a guess, but it's not that many. Um, but it is a lot. Like it's like hundreds of thousands, um, uh, of sightings. Absolutely. Sort of over, over the last 20 years, which is still like an enormous amount of data. Um, when you think about like on an average, like, uh, survey day, um, depending on where you are, you might only have, um, yeah, you know, like a handful of sightings. I should mention that for the sightings network and for a lot of kind of cetacean citizen science, a sighting can be multiple animals. So, you know, you can say, you know, I saw a group of 500 dolphins and that's one sighting. So the number of animals and the number of sightings is is a little bit different. But, um, yeah, I mean, that project has been, is huge and coastwide, um, and, you know, really meaningful in terms of both, um, gathering some really cool data, but also in that engagement piece. And I think that those, you know, really, um, sort of, um, are both really valuable. So, um, one of the things about community science or citizen science that I like is that it's not just, Scientists then saying, give me your data and I'm going to run away with it. Um, but there's, um, I think really good ones are reciprocal and that there is that engagement piece. People um, get value, they get feedback. Um, and that's something I learned, um, through working with the sightings network over the years is that, um, that feedback back to people and that communication and that, you know, um, information was really a key piece of keeping them engaged and wanting to be sort of citizen scientists. Um, because if it just goes into an app and and you never hear anything ever again, it's kind of like this black hole, right? So, so having some sort of piece of feedback, some telling you i got it this is what it's going towards here's what we're working on right now um i think was really really valuable and and um if anyone's listening i am not a citizen science expert but i would give you that tip make sure you always have that feedback and then it's pretty regular
0: yeah it's a good way to like keep people coming back and like like continuing that cycle of like long-term participants for rather sure. than one-off participants.
3: Yeah, I one of the, you know, um, just kind of switching gears, so obviously I, I worked with the Sightings Network for many years um, but with the Marine Education and Research Society, we've been really involved in collecting data on um, humpback whales, especially around northern Vancouver Island. Um, and, uh, and that has a citizen science or community science component too. Um, so they that project really works on gathering um, additional fluke photos or dorsal photos from people who are on the water. So it's a little bit more um, technical. People have to have photos. They have to know how to take those photos, Um, but they can submit them in. um, And that is like hugely engaging. People get like really, really into it (laughs) because then they get to know who the whale is. Um, And our team with MERS has really, you know, got that piece down of like, let me tell you about that whale what we know about it, all that thing. And so, um, again, sort of that engagement piece in, in um, yeah, really identifying um, and getting to feel like a little bit like a marine biologist is, I think, <laughs> really exciting for people. You know, a lot of us had that dream as little kids um, and then our dreams took us elsewhere. But there's still that little like eight year old that was like, I want to be a marine biologist. So um, I think that that's kind of a fun way to allow people a little piece of that as well.
0: So some of these programs have been running for like a pretty long time, like many years. And I know they're done in collaboration with professional researchers. Do you have any examples of any like um, research projects that have used the um, data that come from these citizen science projects? Yeah. I mean, that's like,
3: that's a, that's, one of the key things so um I think uh you know that one of the definitions that you see of citizen science is science is sort of um sort of the public or like a dedicated group of non-scientists collecting information and working with kind of scientific professionals um in a collaboration I like to say it as like a collaboration because one wouldn't happen without the other um to like uncover things about our natural world or, or other types of, of science. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, valuable citizen scientists do have that extra component that again, it's not just data collecting for the sake of data collecting, but that, that data does go to something. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, with the sightings network, that project, the, the, that data gets used, um, really, uh, often, um, in tens, twenties, or more projects a year. Um, so people, scientists can, um, request to, to access that data for, for reasons. Um, some things that has gone towards is looking at like overlap of, um, cetacean populations, um, and, and activities that happen that may put them at risk. So maybe potentially, uh, certain types of fisheries that have higher entanglement rates and, or, um, uh, large vessel traffic that may result in ship strikes. Um, of course, with the, um, humpback work that MERS does using that data collected kind of from these citizen scientists, um, around that area, we can look at sort of population growth in humpback whales or changes in distribution as well. Because when we know the individuals, um, we can look much more closely at sort of, is it more humpbacks, um, or is it the same humpbacks, but using different areas? Or are these humpbacks that used to use this area just shifting into a new area? Or is it an increased population? for example. Um, so yeah, lots lots of different examples of using these for kind of um scientific questions. Um, and I I should mention that, you know, another kind of powerful way that we can use this sort of community collected data is for sort of conservation and protection as well. So one thing that the BC Cetacean Sightings Network has done with that data is start to use it to um try and reduce the impact of um large vessel traffic on cetaceans so um what what we have what that project has done is take sightings that are coming in in real time um so uh now that we have apps because we're in the 21st century uh, and and to then broadcast those back out to um pilots or um, captains of large vessels um, to let them know that there are cetaceans in their vicinity. Um, so one thing that we you know, we know is that, for example, those really big vessels coming in from offshore, big shipping vessels, one, it's really hard for them to see right off or right around them. So they're really big vessels that, you know, their line of sight is, is quite far. Um, often um, uh, it's, it's hard for them to see cetaceans. It's also hard for them to take quick maneuvers. So the more sort of awareness they have, there might be a cetacean around, it's in this area, okay, maybe we can take this diversionary tactic right now, um, to reduce either, you know, um, disturbance and or potential ship strike, um, uh, is, is a way, yeah, to hopefully reduce threats to these animals. So that's another really cool sort of real world application of community science. So we're taking sightings, um, sightings that have high confidence, I should say. So sightings that where people feel really certain of what they're seeing, um, we do ask citizen scientists to, to rate how they, you know, their confidence in their sighting. Um, and then, it, and then broadcast that back out to sort of the subset of mariners, That don't want to see whales. They don't want to see them. They don't want to be near them. And so we're saying they're here. Do what you can do to get away from them, kind of thing. Um, (laughs) And so that's kind of, I I think, a really powerful way for this this information to be used. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, you know, really um, a way I think people should feel really proud of contributing to that because, um, as we know, a lot of populations are really impacted by by vessel driven threats.
1: So, regardless of if you're near a big, big ship or not, how do you, how do you go about submitting a sighting on this fancy app? That you
3: have? Reporting a sighting to the sightings network is is pretty easy. So there's an app called Whale Report. Um, you can download it. It's free. Um, easy peasy. Um, if you're not an app person, um, there is still like a web form online. Um, if you want to go like super old school, there like probably is like a couple paper log books still kick- kicking around. You can throw one <laughs> on your boat. Um, so yeah, so that, that's really easy. Um, but you know, I really, I encourage people to, um, look up it, there, there's a lot of these types of projects. So the BC Citation Sightings Network is one that we have here on the coast but there are um similar projects in a lot of different parts of north america and even the world as well so um if you're not here in bc look them up and there's lots of great apps um out there that do do really similar similar projects um yeah and then you know things like if you are someone who is taking photos of these animals um submit them please do because um you know if you say uh, if you submit them to the sightings network they will sort of filter them off to other places if you're around sort of central northern Vancouver Island you can contact the marine education and research society directly um uh but yeah there you know that's a little um is a little more involved but also really valuable and <laughs> the more information you can collect um when you are um around cetaceans like someone's gonna want it truly um or want to hear about it right because um this type of information is is um is quite valuable and then it's also a way for scientists even if it doesn't go into a database to at least like have in the back of their mind like oh this was happening um good to know kind of thing. So yeah, uh, yeah, I guess that's sort of my, my plug is just, uh, have a look for it, but yeah, there's, there's uh, an app for the VC cetacean sightings network. Um, and there, I, I, you know, I will say that there are lots of other smaller projects looking at cetaceans on our coast that also, you know, encourage people to contribute. Um, so, um, I'm sure there other people will be like, but what about this? So I do want to mention that there definitely are other ones out there too.
1: Yeah, we have a list that I actually haven't looked at in a couple of years, but we do have a list on our website that we'll put in the show notes of sightings and networks that we've gathered from around the world, including, of course, BCCSN and mares, and then a, a happy whale when we talked to Ted last in the spring, uh, and the Porpoise Conservation Society when we talked to them a couple of years ago, all sorts of them, all sorts of things. But yeah, if you're on the coast... And a thing to note, of course, like as opposed to something like with Ted with like the flukes, is that you guys want to know if you don't, if you aren't able to get a photo, it's still worth reporting the sightings. It's
3: totally still worth. And Yeah. yeah, that's one of the things that I think has been really cool about the sightings network is that it's like low barrier, right? So it's opportunistic. So you don't have to sign up in advance. You can, you know, you don't even have to have the app just like write some notes down in your like on your phone or on the back of your hand or in a piece of paper if you're old school. Um, and, uh, and then you can submit it after the fact. So it is, you know, you don't have to do anything in advance. And there's no commitment. So of course, we want to hear every time you see it. But that's, you know, if you're like I said, if you're only around Wales once, then report it once. And that's, that's fine. And you also don't you don't have to submit photos. Photos are great. They're a bonus. But no big deal. Um, It also has, uh, and a lot of community science projects really have this. There's a lot of resources to help you. um, And there are people on the back end of these projects that will help you as well. So if you're not sure what you saw, like we, have, there are, you know, ID guides out there and associated with these projects or on apps, on the apps and stuff like that, that will help you determine that. And if you still don't know, there is someone back there. If you say like, this is what I think I saw. um, And, you know, one of the things um that I used to do when I was working with the sightings network is uh, you know connect back with those people and um and say, "Okay, let me ask you this section of questions. Let me send you these pictures. what do you think and And often we could kind of get down to at least a a fairly confident or a probable sighting um yeah, so um don't feel like you have to have the skills. This is a place to to get those skills and to do that learning.
2: mm-hmm. One other question I had for you, Caitlin, is we know and we, we try to list, but you're right. I haven't looked at that web. But that's part of our site in a long time either. So it might be worth an update. Um, but there are probably listeners of ours living in coastal areas where there may not be a community or citizen science project going on. Would you have any advice if people are living coastally where there are cetaceans um, about how people might go about starting something in their own community if there isn't something already happening?
3: Yeah, that's like, that's a really great question. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I would. Oh, God. Yeah, lots of, (laughs) lots of thoughts on that. Um, let me, let me organize them in my brain. So one, I would say like, go for it. So one of the things I, I don't necessarily consider myself. Um, a scientist but I do consider myself a naturalist in kind of that old school way and I think that there's a lot of room for people to become naturalists and all you have to be is an, uh, an observer and curious and interested in starting to make those observations um, and so I encourage people to be those kinds of naturalists and to start making those notes so you can do that all on your own you can build your own personal citizen science project um, but but if you're wanting to kind of create something bigger i mean like i was just talking about that one observer on quadra island or another example would be a group i know on saturna island which has kind of created you know their own neighborhood project where um they um observe together. They alert each other. They've even started to, um, collect data together. Um, uh, so talk to your friends, talk to your friends around, um, and sort of decide, okay, are we going to start paying attention? We'll let each other know. Um, and I think really early on, it's great to have sort of a, a set of what you collect. So, you know, where are you? What time is it? Um, what's going on, uh, it, with the weather sometimes can be helpful. How far away was this animal how many were there um uh, a little bit about what that animal was doing um and uh and 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 from there you have a bunch of data already and you can start putting points on maps. Um, I would also say don't start from scratch. There is a lot of free tools already out there. So even if you're nowhere near um, BC, there is these worldwide projects like the iNaturalist project, for example, which can be used as a data collection tool for yourself. Um, There's other really simple um, downloads that you can create that would make yourself like a little mini sort of data collecting sheet for (laughs) (laughs) for example. So there's lots of resources out there. Um, check out other, um, you know, if you wanted to start a project, check out some of the other um, citizen science or community science projects doing something similar. What do they collect? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Um, you know, uh, I talk about things being low barrier, which I think is really good if you're doing a very, very big, you know, broad scope, multi-species, huge coast type project. But if it's just, you know, this bay that I live on, um, put some parameters around it. So we're going to go look every day. Um, Someone's going to go for an hour, you know, between this time and this time, or we all go on Saturdays or something, because that also gives you um, an an extra piece of information that opportunistic projects don't get, which is kind of effort, which um, down the road can be very, very useful because you have that information about how often you were there. um, And that allows you to quantify sort of when you were seeing and when you weren't and, and how representative that is of sort of the norm or, or sort of a regular kind of season. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think, um, I think it's also okay to start small and to, to change your mind. I mean, of course it would be amazing to create like the perfect community science project from scratch right away, bang, boom. Um, but, that's probably unlikely. So just start. <laughs> my biggest piece of advice is just start. Um, and the practice of, uh, of my last thing I'll say um, is that the practice of community or citizen science has come so far. Like there is conferences, there are journals now, there is a lot of information about that. So also, you know, if someone who is like a scientist right now is listening to this and wants to start that, you know, that might be somewhere where you dive in you start going through the academic literature or if you're not a scientist you can do that too but there is um really a lot of kind of um work that's been done that looks at how they're successful or how they're not successful um and uh and uh best practices um and things like that and yeah um i i would say those things many things
2: (laughs) those are all good helpful things (laughs) Thank you, Caitlin. Yeah, no okay. worries. Are you ready for what is my favorite part of the show, which is when I get to sing a little bit and then you tell us I, something fun?
3: <laughs> I am ready for to hear your jingle.
2: Go for it. Fun, 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 Flipper Fact. It's time for Fun slipper Fact with Caitlin. That one's just for you, because we both have kids, and I have been watching a lot of
0: Dora lately.
2: <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like this is referencing something.
3: <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very good. I love it. I will sing it to my three-year-old uh, tomorrow.
2: <laughs> so, Caitlin. Can you share with us and our listeners one of, if not your absolute favorite cetacean fact, please and thank you?
3: Okay. So one of, because there are many, but one <laughs> of my favorite cetacean facts is, um, I alluded to this with you guys earlier, not super PG, but it has to do with flying porpoise sex. So um, dun, dun, dun. can we just leave it there? So uh, this is this is my favorite. So um, the smallest cetacean, as I'm sure you all and many of your listeners know, uh, on our coast here in BC uh, is the harbor porpoise. Um, and harbor. I feel, kind of just get ignored a lot of the time. Not by those wonderful folks at the Porpoise Society, but <laughs> most other people. Because they're small. Um, they can sometimes be a little bit unassuming at the surface. So, you know, we kind of get a quick glimpse and often they're gone. Um, and so, you know, I don't think people often think they're too exciting. But they are wild, you guys. So when I moved to Prince Rupert, Um, I was greeted one of my first times on the water by this like wild porpoise party happening at the entrance to the Prince Rupert Harbor. And my like brain was blown. I was like, what is happening? I had never seen porpoises um acting like this. And they were zipping around. There were literally probably over a hundred of them. So that in itself is quite unusual. We do not usually get big, big groups like that. Um, and at one point, this porpoise came flying out of the water, which again is not super typical behavior of a porpoise. Um, I took a photo. I was lucky enough to take a photo at that. And when I got back and really zoomed in, I realized that there was, um, some indecent exposure by the porpoise <laughs> flying out of the water. Um, and I've and this has since become a thing. So not I did not discover this, but um, it is how porpoises mate. So males are these sneak maters. So basically, um, they have this poly, polyamorous society. So males mate with a lot of females. Females mate with a lot of males. Um, and as some people may Know another great fact about harbor porpoise males is that their testes are the largest um, to body ratio in the sort of mammal kingdom. Up to 6% of their body um, weight is testes during breeding season. Um, and usually, big testes mean that they're trying to, like, oh, Um, compete other males with like lots of sperm so they're sperm swamping each other but the way that the that copulation actually happens is that the males actually kind of um, sneak up on the females and they sort of leap out of the water beside them while trying to um yeah essentially uh like have sex with the females. Always from the left, you guys. They always do it from the left too, which is wild. So weird. So crazy, but the reason I love, first of all, this is just wild stuff, and there's even more, it gets even crazier, because females, research has since shown that female harbor purposes have all these interesting ways to try and avoid it if they don't want to copulate with a certain male, including including these super convoluted, um, Reproductive tracts as well, and uh, the scientist who studies this, Dara Arbat, calls it an intersexual evolutionary arms race between harbor porpoise males and females, which is which is crazy. So here's this little unassuming cetacean which has the craziest sex life of any cetacean <laughs> on our coast, I think, um, and they come flying out of the water from the left, and the reason I love this even more is that this was studied through community science
0: oh Yay! she brings that all back
3: around <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this was really discovered um, and uh, first written about by a community science and scientist project working in San Francisco Bay. So they um, study harbor purposes from the Golden Gate Bridge, which is so cool as well. Super non-invasive way to study purposes. They look down on them from the bridge and they watch them and they started seeing this exact same behavior. And so they started recording that information in sort of their community science project um collecting photos as well and indeed it's always from the left and you know going into this they have discovered that this is this interesting mating uh, behavior uh, of male harbor porpoises um and and since we've learned about the female intersect evolutionary arms race in sex and harbor porpoises but yeah so it, it was something that was first studied by them um and that cool picture i took um the first time I I saw it actually was part of a poster that they presented at the last um Marine Mammal Conference because not only did they publish it on, on San Francisco Bay, but they then started reaching out to others saying, who else has seen it? Does this happen in harbor porpoises everywhere? And so far, it looks like, yes, this is just how harbor porpoises mate. That's um, even
0: so- weirder that it happens everywhere. <laughs> like it's already weird, but then the fact that it's everywhere. From the left,
3: too. only because it seems very, like,
0: a learned behavior, but then it's, they all do it.
3: This is how they do it. And it's, uh, yep, sneaking up and
0: flying through the air and
3: things everywhere. So (laughs) there you (laughs) go.
2: That might just be my favorite fun flipper fact we've ever had.
3: (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. (laughs) If you ever have a chance to see a talk by Daryl. who is one of the scientists that studies this she's also the best speaker um and she makes like that idea of harbor porpoise genitalia like wildly entertaining and engaging
1: (laughs) (laughs) amazing oh man that's so awesome i don't know if any other story could top that but do you have i'm sure that you do have some other amazing whale tails to share. (laughs) Maybe with less genitalia? (laughs) I promise. We're
2: not. That's not (laughs) an (laughs) (laughs) hermit.
3: I promise there will be no genitalia from here on out. Um, Okay, a good whale tail. Okay, I have, uh, I thought of two. Do you want Mm. humpbacks or northern resident killer whales?
1: Well, I know what I'm going to say, but it's going to be the um, the opposite of what all of our listeners are going to say, so you might as well go with the residents.
3: <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's like a wildly good story, but it is uh, when I was thinking about this, and especially this is kind of, um, it's kind of making me a little bit sentimental, because as I told you, I'm leaving my position uh, with Ocean Wise to seek new things. Um, but I am feeling like a little bit sentimental about all the opportunities, amazing opportunities I had working there. Um, but, uh, I was recently thinking, uh, about, a field um, trip that I did on the North coast and one of the most special encounters I ever had. So um, one of the things I loved about moving to the North coast, so I guess I should preface this with explaining why. So I worked um, down South out of Vancouver for many years um, and on that community science project. Um, and we discovered that we, well, we knew this, but we did a big analysis of effort on our coast. Um, and we, um, you know, looked at where people that were sending us in sightings were spending time on the water. We modeled it all out. And of course, as you would expect, there was a lot less effort on the North Coast. So we decided to open an office in Prince Rupert on the North Coast of BC to try and bolster engagement in this project because a face to a community science project always creates more sort of, yeah, uh, investment in it, and engagement, you're able to kind of keep it going. Um, and so uh, I wanted out of the city. Um, and so I moved up here to do that um and my time up here has moved away from community science i still do a little bit um, but more towards um other projects um and part of that was trying to look at um um you know cetacean populations in multiple ways including you know getting observers and and citizen science but also spending more time on the water so there long preamble i i was um uh, I was here on the North Coast, uh, doing some work, um, with my boss, Dr. Lance Barrett Leonard, um, and we were on our boat, the Scanna, um, and we were doing, um, sort of a survey of the area to look at, um, you know, which, uh, which cetaceans, uh, we could find and which areas and, you know, gathering data, um, uh, through that. Um, and, you know, we had been not finding a ton yet, um, uh, and so we had been covering a lot of areas and, and time, and we kind of hunkered down in a uh, bay one night um, because it was stormy and we were kind of trying to wait it out. Um, and uh, we headed out the next morning um, out uh, of Uh, bell passage into, um, Hecate Strait. Um, so Hecate Strait is, you know, a big northern body of water between here and, uh, between the mainland and Haida Gwaii. Um, it's known to be kind of rough and, and tumble when the weather's bad, but this happened to be a really beautiful day and we kind of headed out there. And, um, even before we had dropped the hydrophone in the water, which we often do just to listen to hear, if we hear anything in the distance, any, um, cetacean calls or particularly killer whale calls um in front of us some whales appeared um and uh we were you know kind of surprised if there hadn't been any talk about uh killer whales we hadn't seen anything in the days before um and there they were and so we we're like oh great good morning and expecting kind of maybe one matriline or, or one family but it was one of those days where you find one and then you realize a little bit further back, there's another um, group and then another group and another group and another group. And we had all these match lines and they were sort of kind of all spread out. There were R's and there were I's, um, and, uh, a few A clan, um, lines, and they were all sort of heading down the Eastern part of Hackett Strait, heading South down there. Um, and so we kind of bounced between the groups, collecting ID photos, you know, suing who was there. Um, we would contribute those into Fisheries and Oceans Canada for sort of their annual census, uh, of, of, of killer whales. Um, and, and it was a great encounter are really nice, but as we were heading down. Um Stevens Island. We realized that we were approaching um, a place called Porcher Island, and on Pro- Porcher Island there is a rubbing beach. Um, and uh, I'm sure you guys have probably talked about rubbing uh, on the podcast before. But rubbing is a behavior demonstrated um, uh, by northern resident killer whales, where they come in really close to very specific types of beaches with very specific types of kind of round, smooth rocks, and they rub their bodies along the, um, along these rocks. Um, the most famous rubbing beach, of course, being at Robson Bight in Johnson, Johnson Strait, but there are other ones on the coast. So there is a rubbing beach on Porcher Island. Um, uh, and, uh, we were going to leave them. And then we realized we were getting closer and closer to that area. And so we thought, you know, maybe we'll hang back and we'll see what they do. Um, and so we kind of gave more space, more distance. We didn't want to be in too close and sure enough, as they were traveling, you know, in a fairly straight line South, as they got close to that rubbing beach, they literally did like a 90 degree degree turn into, to, um, that, uh, into that beach. And one at a time, they grouped up in natural lines and one matro line would go in and rub against those rocks, um, and then leave. And the next line would come in and they did it as families. Um, and they kind of literally took turns, um, going in rubbing and then moving off, um, of of that area and it was so spectacular. Um we were able to observe it from a, a safe distance away without disturbing them. Um but um really get get to see it um and we got to hear them. So uh when um killer whales uh, northern resident killer whales rub they often have these aberrant kind of calls so different than sort of the normal stereotype calls they make um uh Dr. John Ford calls them Looney tunes um, and so they make all these kind of crazy calls and you could hear that this beach um, has a lot of surf action. So you could hear the surf and you could hear the rocks rubbing through the hydrophone and then these wild killer whale calls going. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful, so special. Um, and one of the things that also made it so spectacular is that um, there was nobody else around. And one of the things I've loved about working on the North Coast is just um getting to be in areas alone um and getting to see whales um on their own uh without a lot of vessels around them in sort of these unimpeded ways um and i hope i truly hope that we had get we gave enough um space and that we didn't intrude on that they definitely did a bunch of behavior so I, i'm hoping they didn't but it was um it was Absolutely breathtaking, Um, and um, one of my most favorite memories I'll take from um, from that position that I'm wrapping up.
1: It's so amazing, but I also have like this image of like water slides or like slides, (laughs) like everybody lining up in a row.
3: (laughs) Yeah. One of the cat, one of the calves and one of the matriline that was in there, um, draped himself all up in, um, uh, uh, kelp at one point <laughs> as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of the things that's so cool about that is both it really demonstrates sort of their, fam- familial bonds, right? Like it really was like they kind of grouped up all of a sudden into the matrilines and they all were taking turns. Um, but it was like, um, you know, just such a beautiful example of this idea of culture in another species. And, um, I think that's something that makes us all really, um, so interested in in resident killer whales in killer whales in general is that idea that they have sort of culture they have these specific things that they do um and beach rubbing is such like um a, a, a thing of northern residents so it was very cool to get to observe that um I, I, at that place in in kind of a really um yeah special special and amazing way I feel so fortunate <laughs> that I got to see it
0: mm. oh that's so great Well, that probably almost brings us to the end of this episode. But before we go, we are coming up on an important part of our culture anyways, which is where you get to spend time with your family and maybe you give gifts over the holidays. And so we thought we would share um, maybe one of Caitlin's favorite ways to make that part of our culture a little more sustainable or whale friendly.
3: I'm sure you guys have talked about a lot of different ways to do it. I always like to give plugs um, for gifts that um, help support um, research on these animals. And maybe you guys have talked about this before, but there's uh, some really cool adoption programs on our coast here um, that uh, allow you to help support um, science in these animals, including some of these community science projects that we've been talking about today. Um, and. And, uh, it's, uh, I think, a neat way, again, to sort of engage people in learning about those animals in their backyard um, through a sneaky gift. Um, so um, I, you know, I like to to plug those on the holidays. Um, and they're usually a gift that keep giving because you get updates um, throughout the year about the animal you adopt. Um, and so, yeah, so I encourage people to check those out. I Again, they're around the um, world. I know there's similar adoption programs. Here in BC, we have both the Killer Whale Adoption Program, um, and we also, uh, the Marine Education and Research Society has a Humpback Whale Adoption Program um, as well, um, where you get to learn about your animal, you'll get updates about that animal, um, and uh, you get a little keepsake too. Um, And usually some cool things like vocalizations and videos and and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think that that's a great way to support science and and also um, give something that will kind of engage you in learning about these animals.
2: And if it comes with a stuffy, all the better.
3: (laughs) yeah i think now you can choose stuffy or no stuffy just to reduce stuffy waste if you um yeah Mm -hmm. but uh yes you can have a stuffy too Mm -hmm. again i also just
2: have stuffies (laughs) on the brain because children (laughs) because kids it's true but you're right as a as a regular adult probably there's it's good to have a no stuffy option it's
0: like you only need one stuffy you don't need one every year
3: yeah totally that's also true yeah
0: yeah um but yeah that would
3: be my my holiday gift it's usually one of my holiday gifts of choice
2: Well, Caitlin, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. It was so great to hear from you, to see you again. It's been way too long. You live very far away. Not that we see really anybody because of the world.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you guys for having me. Um, This is my very first podcast. So uh, super uh, exciting to do it with you all. really happy to talk about community science. And uh, hopefully this encourages maybe a few of your listeners to get involved with something, whether it's citations or something else. There's lots of those around as well so thanks for having me you guys
2: uh, and we would really love to hear your thoughts listeners on this episode or any episode of course so please visit our website whale-tails.org and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line.
1: You can also tweet at us directly I am fhg07 Sarah is Sarah K given no H and Nicole is Nick F can c-a-n-n although she'll probably not be responding to her Twitter for the next couple of months. <laughs> True. <laughs>
0: You can also head to our website to subscribe to the podcast, check out our merchandise, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over 1,000 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a citation, we would love to add your story to our library. Click the share link on our site, contact us on social media, whaltales.org, or email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible encounter. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us, and we hope you have a whaley great day.